People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Why would a company take out a full-page ad in the New York Times telling readers not to buy its jackets? How did a 22-year-old Honda Accord with over 140,000 miles sell for six figures? Why do massive communities form around brands like Nike and Apple and celebrities like Beyonce? In his new book, Marcus Collins argues that all of these things are the result of culture. Marcus is an award-winning marketer. He's a recipient of advertising ages 40 under 40 and Crane Businesses 40 under 40. His strategies and creative contributions have led to the success of Budweiser's Made in America Music Festival and State Farm's Cliff Paul ad campaign. He also ran digital strategy for Beyonce, which we will talk to him about. He's taught at NYU, Boston, Harvard, and is currently a clinical assistant professor of marketing at the Stephen Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, where he's also the faculty director for the school's executive education partnership with Google, and he holds a doctorate of business administration from the Fox Business School at Temple University. He's also the author of For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. Professor, welcome to Politicology. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. That was a great setup. I love it. So. You said at the end of a TED Talk in 2017, if we get better at learning each other and understanding each other, we build stronger ties, which will build stronger communities, which will build stronger cities, stronger states, and a far greater nation. Why do you do what you do? I believe that we're all put on this earth to serve. I just think that our job as a species is to serve, to serve God and serve each other. And I'd arguably say that we serve God by serving each other. And I feel like I'm at my best when I'm helping people realize the best version of themselves. So the way I serve, why I do what I do is to help people be the highest fidelity version of themselves, whether it's on stage, in classrooms, and boardrooms, through text, or whatever the manifestation may be. It's all driven at that myopic goal to help people be great. I ran through a few of your numerous bona fides. So for anything that I missed, and for anybody who's not familiar with your work yet, do you want to say a little bit more about your your potted bio, as it were, all the things that have led you to the work you're doing now? Well, you, you, you did a really good job of setting it up, for sure. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm very, very flattered. You know, I think that if I were to summarize sort of what's gotten me here, it's less about the accolades and more about sort of the the milestones along the journey. Yeah. You know, I, I'm born and raised in Detroit. Like I start there because I feel like I'm a product of the city. Um, went to Michigan undergrad to study engineering because I thought that I was wanted to be an engineer because I thought I was supposed to be an engineer. Uh, realized after my first year of school that though I thought in engineering was interesting, I wasn't necessarily interested. Mm. Right. Very fascinating. But I didn't think I could see myself doing it for the rest of my life. My parents thought opposite. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, my, my mother, who's an academic, says, you know, finish, engineering, you'll love it. Wait till you get into your major. So I did. And I was like, oh, man, this is not for me. So I took some music theory courses to offset my terrible GPA and fell in love with major sevenths. And I said, you know, I want to be a songwriter. That's yeah. what I want to do. And I said, mom and dad, I know what I want to do. I want to write songs for a living. And they said, you must be smoking crack because that is not <laughs> going to happen. Um, so after I went back to school to finish my engineering degree, after that summer, I went into the music business and had like modest success. I mean, very, 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 very modest success. Um, until I didn't. And I went back to school to get my MBA to study marketing and disruption mm-hmm. that was happening in music that we know is digital. 
then went to work at Apple, then worked at Beyonce, then found myself in advertising, and then one foot in advertising and one foot in, in academia. And I think about my career through that lens, not sort of what I've achieved, but these experiences that I've had because yeah. they helped me see the world the way that I do. And that's the thing that I'm most proud of is the point of view of the world yeah. that I've been able to acquire thanks to people a million times smarter than me uh, and folks who who saw enough in me to invest in me and to pour into me so that I can be who I am right now. You talk about your journey into marketing through academia, which is uh, a rather unusual course for someone who's been so effective at applied marketing. Mm-hmm. Um one of my heroes, Robert Cialdini. Yeah, he's the best. Uh, is is sort of he's he's famous in the field because he went the other way, right? That's right? Because in order to learn about marketing, he studied all the people who were good at it, and then he developed a theory about why they were so good at it. That's and right. you went the opposite direction, drawing on all of the teachings of the the people who had come come before the marketing giants, yeah. and went into marketing and applied their different theories to to lots of different very high profile campaigns. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, so uh, I was running social at an agency called Translation that was started by uh, Steve Stout uh, and his partners, Jimmy Iovine and Jay-Z. And it's all about helping brands thrive in culture. And I was like, that sounds so cool. Right? And they worked with like all these <laughs> celebrities. And it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was super, super cool. It was all the work that I'd seen in the market in the wild and been like, that's the kind of work that I want to do as an advertiser. So when I met Stout and he asked me to come over to build a social practice, I was like, count me in. I'm so there. Social. We'll put that in your Exactly. Course. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we so, need social. Uh, that's right. And I'm like, bet. I'm, I'm so, I'm here for this. And I realized over dinner, I write about this in the book. I'm at dinner with my wife uh, and, and, and her, uh, her, her friend from, from school, from college. And she's a social worker. And at dinner, she keeps saying, it's social, we do this. It's social, we do that. And it's social. And I keep asking myself, why does she keep saying that? Because I say the same thing. And social, you do this. The television, you do that. The radio, you do this. It's social, you do that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I get it. She's saying that because social means people. And in that moment, I felt, I felt like this revelatory experience. I felt like I feel like the world just opened up. Social is people, of mm. course. Social justice, social action, social welfare, it's people. And in that moment, I felt immense amount of dread mm. because I knew nothing about people. Nothing. I mean, I knew Freudian slip. That's about it. <laughs> nothing else. And, and I felt like a fraud. And I was like, I'm going to get fired because I'm a fraud. And my wife says, "Won't well, you just start reading? Learn about reading people." It. And I was like, "I don't read books. I read articles. Uh, just super stupid." Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and she says, "Look, there's a book by my friend Dan Dan Ariely uh-huh. called Predictably Irrational. Mm. Uh, it's a really good book. You should check it out." And I was like, "I'll do anything," <laughs> because I was scared. And I read this book, and it rang a bell that I couldn't unring. Mm. And as I read the book, I went back and read, read, it, read it again, and then highlighted all the research that I thought was interesting, then started reading that research. And while I'm going through this sort of self-directed discovery, I'm going to work every day, and I'm hearing people talk. And I go, these people have no clue what they're talking about. They don't got a clue. Like all these abstractions yeah. and jargon and buzzwords. We with, hide in jargon. Exactly. Marketers hide in jargon. One thousand <laughs> percent. I mean, it, it's a way by which we're able to keep people at a distance. That we use these words that mean nothing, but they sound very fanciful. And you go, okay, that guy must know something because look how he talks. Mm-hmm. But like underneath it, it's nothing. And I was like, I don't want to be that person. I mean, I've already been, I've already been exposed as not knowing what social <laughs> was, clearly. And I didn't want to be that ignorant again. Yeah. 
And the more I started to invest myself into social sciences, the clearer the world got. Yeah. And, and the more the more substance uh, I could realize in the things that we talked about and the things we put in the world, and I could see the connections between things. I go, oh, that's that. And yeah. that's what I did. That, oh, yeah, totally. These guys have been studying it for a century plus. Like, they've already solved it. Yeah. Like, that's the cheat code. Yeah. And as I started to leverage the social sciences into my work, the work just got infinitely better. And I was like, yeah. oh, I'm doing this yeah. all day yeah. long. And and that's been, that is, to me, that's been sort of the battery in my back. The more that I understand the phenomenal world in which yeah. we reside, the underlying physics that govern social behavior, the more agency I had to leverage those mechanisms to get people to move. And that, after all, is the core function of marketing. So we're going to talk about why a lot in yeah. this conversation. It's funny. I kept thinking of Simon Sinek as yeah. I was reading your book. Like every single page, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Simon it's, it's, was on it. It's actually in everything. He was on it. Can you, um, and we'll talk about, you know, various examples of how this plays out. But as you turned to the literature, as you turned to the text to to understand human behavior, when did why pop out to you as a, when did purpose, when did meaning? So I, I it wasn't in my media diet originally. I was just essentially, I was fixated on behavioral economics and social psychology. And that was sort of the, the boundaries. Yep. And there's just so much there. There's, I mean, that's, I mean, so much, so much, so much. Rich right? body of work. Exactly. Yeah. So like, and I'm, I'm reading like Richard Thaler, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Chip and Dan, and, and, and Dan Heath. Like I'm like, I'm in that body, yep. a body of works from Jonah Berger, blah, blah, blah. Made to stick, I think. That's right. Made yeah. to stick. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that was the first one. Um, and I tripped over his TED talk. And the way he spoke, I was like, okay, this guy is not playing games. <laughs> you know, it's like, it was, I mean, he was convincing, but he was, he, he was, he was assured. And I was like, man, that guy, like, I was like, he's on to something. And then I found out he had a book. And when I read the book, I, it, it, it's almost like, um, like a beautiful mind. Yeah. Like when he's looking at all these disparate things yeah. and they start right. to connect and I was like that. It was almost like the end of Usual yeah. Suspects. Yeah. Like when you yeah. started to realize like, oh, Kobayashi. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> These guys are so yeah. Like that's how it was so for me. <laughs> it, it, that, it, that's, that's what that experience was for me, reading his book. And it, it really became sort of the, the layman articulation mm -hmm. of all the academic yeah. literature that I've yeah. been taking in. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, the ability— to take these things that have been rigorously interrogated and translate it so that an average Joe Schmo like me can understand it, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. And as an advertiser, which is the discipline I'm sitting in, that, that's our job as partners for clients to be sort of these consigliaries that help them see the world. But if you can't articulate in the way they understand it and can apply it, then you're not really helping. You're creating more noise yeah. than anything else. And I think that in the early part of my introduction into the behavioral sciences, I was just using the literature. I was like regurgitating yep. the literature. Yep. So the language felt a little far off, not very accessible for them. Yep. Right. Um, so I'm talking about like, you know, uh, talking about, you know, network effects. They're like, okay. okay. <laughs> right. I know what a network is kind of. Yeah. But what are network effects mm -hmm. exactly? It's so like the, the language may have seemed familiar, but they didn't really understand it. But when I started reading things like like Simon Sinek, mm. the language became very accessible yeah. and applicable. And 
And I was like, okay, I, I'm a fan of this guy. Yeah, I'm a big fan I, was, of this guy. I was instantly a big fan of it. So let's give our listeners a little window into what we're talking about and okay. give them the layman's version of why, why is so powerful yeah. when it comes to marketing. What is it? What does it get at in terms of human behavior yeah. from an evolutionary standpoint, psychological standpoint? Yeah. Why is it so powerful? So uh, if you take his provocation, yeah. he says that people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Yeah. So, I mean, so simple. Isn't that beautiful? So, so, so it's so elegant in its simplicity, but yet profound. And, and the notion is this, that the biology is this. If you look at the biology of decision-making, the brain is primarily made up of two, ma three major systems. There's the old brain, the reptilian brain, where the cerebellum, uh, um, the, the brainstem sits, and the things that are associated with that are motor in, in nature, like motor function in nature, fight or flight exists there or is associated with that part of the brain. Then there's the limbic system where emotions are associated, love, trust, loyalty, all the gushy stuff that relationships are made the of. Amygdala. Right, exactly. And so you, and that, and in that system is the amygdala, the hippocampus, where memories are, are, are situated, right? So which is why when you hear a song, and it takes you right back to where you were when you first heard it. And like all the emotions flood over you because those things are sitting right next to each other, connecting-wise from synopsis perspective uh, in, in the limbic system. But it's also, but the limbic system is also associated with behavior, which makes sense, right? Like you feel a thing and you make a decision mm -hmm. off of it, right? We call it intuition, mm -hmm. right? I felt it in my gut. No, you didn't. You felt it in your limbic system. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard for us to articulate the things that we feel because articulation and language does not is not associated with the limbic system is associated right. with the neocortex right. right so is linear thinking right so you've got logic and linear thinking that are associated in the same part of the brain or associated the same part of the brain and you have behavior and, and feelings in another part of the brain now those things can operate at the same time right they're they're not binary but they're situated differently. It's like having a Kirk brain and a Spock brain. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. your Kirk brain's like, Marcus, let's just do this. <laughs> your Spock brain goes, wait a minute, Marcus, we can make some data-driven decisions. And we love to be Spock, but we ain't no Spock. Yeah. Right? We're not. Yeah. We're not rational human beings, rationalizing human beings. And the things that can activate these affects that are associated with our behaviors, the, that's the way in that we get people to adopt behavior. Yeah. And for marketers, that's our job. Yeah. So if we want to get people to move, the highest probability of us doing that is by activating the limbic system, right? Or as C.C. Chapman says, start with the soul and end mm. with the cell, mm. right? You start with the emotional, with the evocative, yeah. and yeah. then you end with the, with the rational, yeah. which is essentially what Simon Sinek's yeah. proposition was, that you start with why. He says that it's the why that's the most evocative, yeah. the, what you believe, yeah. not what you do. Yeah. That's most evocative. So you start with why. And then you get to the how, that's the processes, and yeah. the what is the byproduct, the manifestation of the why. And I say it, you know, it's a little differently, more in the way of C.C. Chapman said, to start with what you believe. Yeah. And when you start with what you believe, people who see the world the way you do go, finally, mm. someone said it. That's my person. And that's who you vote for. That's who you buy from. That's who you follow. That's who you subscribe to. That's who you, that, that's, that's what you download. Yeah. All these things become expressions of who we are. So it doesn't even matter what it is. Yeah. We're driven not by what it is, but by who we are. And that's <sighs> super powerful. It's super powerful. It's also why economists always disagree with each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they assume that we are rational actors. That's economists right. assume that's that right. human beings are always acting in, in some form of rationality that's when right. in fact we know that we're motivated by that's right. emotion. And the yeah. interesting thing is that <laughs> marketing as a discipline came out of the economic theory. 
So we used to use economic theory as a way to understand consumer insights um, until marketers realized that, hey, you know, people aren't rational. And while people may be profit maximizers or value maximizers, they will set aside their own personal value for the good of the people. That's not what economists says people ought to do or people would naturally do. So marketers started using psychology to better understand Mm -hmm. how consumers make decisions, right? It's like 1950s, like the madman era. And marketers are realizing how we cognate and saying, oh, so let's use value propositions. Let's use uh, positioning statements, familiarity, frequency, et cetera, things that play at the cognitions that get people to adopt behavior. Um, And then marketers realize that, okay, this is working really well. However, people act differently with different groups of people. Fancy that. So marketers said, well, maybe we should use some sociology theory. To better understand consumer behavior. Since like 1980s, markets started using sociology to better understand why people act the way they do with certain people, right? How they act and why they act. And they realized what was governing that culture. Culture. That culture is the governing operating system of humanity. And it is demarcated and constructed based on the groups of people that we're with. So around the 1990s, markets started leveraging culture as a way to not only understand people, but also as a vehicle to get people to move. Okay. This is a really good segue to culture. Yeah. Because we talk about in politics as being downstream from culture. Yeah. I mean, p- uh, practitioners certainly understand in electoral politics, you're always downstream of culture. Sure. But these are two things that are very difficult to define. Mm-hmm. And I think there are colloquial definitions that don't really serve people. That's right. Of both of those words. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, yeah. I'll give you my favorite definition of politics. Okay. And then you give me your favorite definition of culture. Okay. And let's talk about how they're different and how they're intertwined. Okay. And how you might see them as as separate or related. All right, you go first. Uh, it's not mine. It's from <laughs> a it's uh, from an author, uh, thinker, teacher I really like. His name is Rob Bell. He says, uh, politics is the way we organize the shared parts of our lives together. Huh. The way we organize the shared parts of our lives together. That's powerful. Isn't that? Yeah. That's powerful. It's very simple. Yeah. And, you know, as somebody who does politics, studied politics, it is the most simple encapsulation of the spirit of politics. What? How, how are we doing this stuff together? Yeah. How are we gonna? How are we gonna? How are we gonna organize the, the systems, the things that we have to do that in our shared lives? How do? How? How do we do that? And when you explain like that, it makes it so clear why why culture has such an important part in uh, politics. Because my favorite definition of yeah. culture, yeah, uh, it's twofold. There's two definitions because they play, play together. But when I think about culture, sort of at a glance, I think about it uh, through the lens of Emil Durkheim, mm-hmm. one of the founding fathers of sociology, and he talks about culture as a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and what people like us do. Right, so their their system of beliefs, ideologies that we hold, uh, artifacts that are meaningful, behaviors that are normative, language that we use, and cultural production that are expressions and reflections of who we are, and these systems, arguably system of systems, mm-hmm. uh, they demarcate what people like us ought 
to do mm. or expected to do. And the second sort of layer on top of that comes from a gentleman named Raymond Williams. And he talks about it uh, as culture as a realized meaning-making system. Oh, I love that. So it's through this, this system of systems that we see the world and translate the world. So politics plays a very key mm. role in that because it's this system that we're using to help negotiate and construct what people like us ought to do. It yeah. should be doing. What's the way of life for us? For our rules. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So how do you see the relationship between those two things? So as a practitioner in, yeah. in, in electoral politics, and also we should spend a little bit of time talking about the difference between political marketing and the kind of marketing that you have spent your career doing. Sure. Because they're the same and they're different. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think that they are. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I think that they are instinctively the same because they're after the same objective. Yeah. We want to get people to move. Yeah. Right. And in some cases, we're persuading people, them either to either to believe something or to do something. Well, I yeah. I would often say that I, like the cognition, I can't I, I can't measure cognitions because mm. I don't have an fMRI mm. machine in the mm-hmm. basement. But not only that, people can have consideration. They can have brand love and not move. Mm-hmm. And I can't win that way. Mm-hmm. Right. Like take it from political perspective. You know, you may know my candidate. Like, I like that guy. Yeah. But if you don't go to the ballot, if you don't go to the ballot, it's box, Tuesday election. Yeah, I'm gonna. Right, I'm gonna it, so this right is here. about movement. Yeah. We get people. Don't drink this, drink that. Yeah. They'll go here, go there. Vote for her, not for him. Yeah. They'll subscribe to his newsletter, not hers. Like everything we do is about behavioral adoption. So when I think about like politics, we are literally casting a ballot. Um, but when it comes to consumption of product goods or product services, you're casting your vote by way of your dollar. Yeah. When you watch Netflix as opposed to watching, I don't know, Hulu, you're casting your vote by way of your attention. Yeah. When you uh, subs- sign up for threads or spill as opposed to spoutable or truth social, I don't know, <laughs> uh, you you are casting your ballot with your data. Like yeah. the, we are constantly casting, yeah. right? We're, we're entering exchange. We're giving something for, for something. And those behaviors are driven not because of what they are, but because of who we are. Yeah. And by that very nature, then this is the, the intersection between culture and politics, because they're all about us yeah. and what's acceptable for people like us. Yeah. Which is why there's, we talk about, I didn't, we talk about, uh, you know, the culture wars. I go, yeah, they're the culture wars. They've been culture wars yeah. since the Crusades. Yeah. Like, yes, yeah. like this isn't a new thing. Yeah. Um, the difference is that the fragmentation is so, gr- so great mm. and so salient um, and so perversive uh, that it feels stronger than it ever has been yeah. before. Yeah. I think maybe I would bolt on to that definition of politics that it's about the power of the state. Oh, right. Say more. Say more. It, I mean, I mean, uh, yeah. It is about the, the 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 way we organize a shared part of our lives together. But it is the boundaries that are demarcated by the state. Yeah, uh, the, totally. The, the, the rules yeah, by yeah. which we've said everything within these bounds is okay. Yeah. Everything outside of them is not okay. Yeah. And if you deviate outside of these boundaries, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. You're going to do something about it. We collectively have decided to give people power to do something about it if we don't like it. And the funny part yeah. about that is that <laughs> it's all socially constructed. Right. Still, like it's, it's still, like these these arbitrary right. lines we of geography. because yeah. we get to govern ourselves. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> These arbitrary lines of geography. It's unbelievable um, how hard and fast we look at the rules, yeah. how hard and fast we think about uh, what is acceptable, socially mm-hmm. acceptable, when they're all constructions. Mm-hmm. And, the, and this is sort of what I was getting at in that the TED Talk. At the end of the TED Talk was that, look, the world is inherently subjective. 
everything around us is inherently meaningless. Mm-hmm. It, we construct meaning into the things that we see and that we experience. Therefore, we A, shouldn't treat it with such hard and fast mm-hmm. rules, but B, realize that we're not all seeing the world through the same meaning-making yeah. frames. For yeah. some, a cow is leather. For others, it's a deity. And for some, it's dinner. Yeah. Which one is it? It's all three, depending on who you are. Yeah. And if we can come to the, the to the, the the phenomenal social world in which we live and say, okay, my truth, I believe it, and I believe it's strong, but it's not necessarily the meaning frames by which someone else is seeing the world and making their truth. And so long as their truth doesn't mean my oppression, yep. then we can coexist. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so easy for us to say they crazy <laughs> yeah. because they don't see the world the way you do. Yeah. I mean, everybody's crazy who doesn't see the yeah. world the way you do. Yeah. And then that makes it very hard to cohabitate. I'm making a mental bookmark to come back to this later on in the conversation because I don't want to go there just yet. Okay. We, it, we, we, we'll come back to it. Okay. Before we do, I want to give uh, our listeners some examples of how this has played out in practice in corporate America. So I think the Patagonia example is sure. really great. Yeah. You want to talk about why that full page ad worked for them, yeah. what they did, totally. why it worked. And then let's get into some of the other ways that you've employed this knowledge yeah. in your work. Yeah. So Yvonne Chouinard, uh, it was a outdoor enthusiast. He rode bikes. He surfed. He windsurfed. He climbed mountains. All things I would never do. He did that. Um, And what he realized is when he would ascend up the mountain that the gear he was using was defacing the rock, um, which which made a, a permanent a permanent mark on on nature, but also made the climbs for people behind him un, unsafe. And he said, this, this did not sit well with him. So he decided to become a blacksmith mm-hmm. and he started to create gear to make a, 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 a mitigate his evasiveness on, on on the planet because he believed in this notion of climbing clean like organic climbing right reducing our impact on the world and it went from making these rivets that he would use to climb to making t-shirts to making jackets and now you get patagonia yeah. this outdoor uh this outdoor retailer outdoor product uh uh producer and, 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 and retailer. And Patagonia's wives and very clear to climb clean. And, and it's been extremely transparent about when it does it well and when it doesn't do it well, because that's just how convicted they are. Mm-hmm. And I rarely talk about brands having a purpose because purpose is kind of passive. Yeah, You can have a purpose and never live up to it. Right? Yeah, you could, that's easy. But you I can also to, think you have one and not have one. That's factual yeah. too. <laughs> I typically think about it as conviction because conviction is active. Like to have conviction is to stand for something, mm-hmm. right? It, you, to be convicted is I'm willing to stand for this. If I'm even if I'm the only one, even if it means I'm going to lose money, even if it means that it's going to hurt, I'm going to stand for it because I believe in it. And that's what Patagonia has about about climbing clean. So when Patagonia was thinking about Black Friday and, you know, the country is at our highest, we are, we are, we, we are gladiators in this sport <laughs> called consumption <laughs> during Black Friday. Uh, and, and it's wasteful. Yeah. And of course it has negative uh, impact on, on, on the planet. So uh, Patagonia said, listen, we have this new jacket here, but please don't buy it. Mm-hmm. Don't don't buy this jacket. Well, why would you tell me to buy it? Full page ad. Full page ad, New York Times, yeah. Black Friday, don't buy this jacket. Why? Because you could just get yours repaired. 
In fact, we have a service that we'll repair it for free. In fact, we'll repair jackets that aren't even made by Patagonia because that's how committed we are. Don't buy this jacket. Because it would be wasteful. It, it would be, be wasteful and it would be in, have a horrible impact on, on the planet. Let us just come repair it for you. All good. And if, listen, if we can't repair it to your likings or maybe the jacket doesn't fit yeah. as well anymore because you gained a few LBs or maybe you don't <laughs> like the color because like that bright blue is no longer attractive <laughs> to you, we'll, we'll give you store credit to get another one. Then we'll try to find another buyer for it. Like that's how committed we are to this thing. Don't buy this jacket, please. But if you have to buy a jacket, fine, then buy this one. Mm -hmm. That is unbelievably powerful. Yeah. Because here's a brand saying we are willing to risk economic, uh, economic decline in an effort to live up to our beliefs. And the, the power of that is in the evidence of what happened. Exactly. People said, that's my kind of brand. Yeah. And people actually bought more jackets. <laughs> now, one may say, well, isn't that, isn't that counterintuitive? Isn't that going against what the brand was trying to get done? But people bought jackets and they did the repairs. Yeah. And they went and evangelized the brand to other people like themselves. I mean, Patagonia, somehow or another, not somehow or another, I mean, this is what the literature yeah. is telling us. Yeah, yeah. Patagonia makes decisions that that common common wisdom would say. Intuition would say, that's going to be bad for the company. Traditional marketers would say, <laughs> do not do this. <laughs> but they do it, and the business continues to grow. So much so, they, they're giving away the business. The Chouinard family said, hey, it's better to give the company away than for us to just continue to make money. Because that's how committed we are to the conviction, to the belief. And that, to me, is the gold standard. Hmm. You know, I've also... Uh, 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 I've there's a thought that's occurred to me. I've never want to run for office. I've seen enough behind the scenes of politics. <laughs> I never, ever, ever want to do that. But um, when I think about stuff like this, there's this, there's this fantasy land, you know, political campaign that I want to run, mm. which is don't vote for me. Mm. Don't vote for me. But I'm going to spend this entire campaign telling you all the ways the system actually works behind the scenes and all the ways it's not serving you. Huh. But don't you dare vote for me because I don't want to be, I don't want to go to Congress. I don't want to do this job. Yeah. But the platform is going to serve you. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that reminds me of, uh, what was that movie, Bulwark with Warren Beatty? Yeah. It's like, I mean, yeah. it's like that. It's Accidentally. Like, yeah, I'm going to keep it real. And then people gravitate to it. Yes. I mean, and, and that's, that's the thing. Yeah. We know these things intuitively. Yeah. For somehow or another, when we put on our marketer hat, we feel like we have to take off our human hat. Yeah. We feel like when, when we've we got to be a professional, we can no longer be human. Yeah. And it's that lack of, hu- uh, 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 of humanity that draws us away from people, that repels people. But the more human we are, the more connection we form because we are wired to be connected, yeah. right? And we, it, it, when we think of the best case studies in the world, they continue to show this over and over again. I write about this in the book, yep. as you know, junior senator from Illinois, this man got no reason to mm. even think about running for president. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about, right? <laughs> Any black? Come on, man. Like, what are you doing? But he has a very clear conviction, right? People think the government is broken. We're not yeah. battling legislation. We're not battling ideas. We're battling cynicism. Yeah. So what did he run on? Hope. Nope. And people go, I like that guy because I see the world the yeah. way he does. Yeah. And then you fast forward eight years later, you have another guy who says, I think the thing is broken. Yeah. And I think that we need to return back to a state where we felt mm. that we were at our best. Mm-hmm. Let's make America great again. Yeah. 
He preached the gospel to people who saw the world the way he did. Keyword we. We, like we said, what is culture? Demarcating who we are. Politics about how we live, how we work together. He preached the gospel to people who saw the world similarly, who abide by the same why. And what do we know? People don't buy brands and branded products. We hire solutions uh, that help us realize our why. Yes. We don't buy what you do. We buy why, why? you do it. And th- th- this is what plays out all the time. Yeah. It's it's almost like the number 23. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. it. You can't it's unsee everywhere. It. Yeah. And that for me has been really powerful in helping brands. Yeah. And helping brands navigate you know, this noisy media marketplace in which we're trying to we're trying to try to try to yeah. fight for people's attention. Yeah. It's because it's deeply human. It's it's very powerful to brands because it's very powerful to people. When you ask a person to identify why they do what they do, when, right. when you're able to connect anybody from any profession with the reason that they're doing what they're doing, That's right. really deep down, it changes everything. That's Sometimes right. they quit their job. <laughs> 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 but let's talk about preaching the gospel. Actually, yeah. let's talk about congregations. Yeah. You use this word congregations in the book. Yeah. And anybody who's familiar with the space at all will think about Seth Godin's tribes. That's right. Um, Seth Godin's another uh, giant in the marketing space. Totally. Really just a, uh, a a brilliant man. Um, how are congregations different from tribes? Yeah. So, so I think about uh, if you, in, in, the, in the, the book, I use religious texts because the early scholars of sociology, which is where the majority of my my theoretical repertoire sits from from my my doctoral work, uh, Marx, Faber, Durkheim, they studied culture by observing religion. Mm. And so you see a lot of that that language in our colloquial use of, of, of marketing, like evangelism, right, uh, play out. So I brought that. I mean, it makes sense that like religion, the etymology of religion is to bind or mm. to commit, right? We talk about doing things religiously. It's like we are committed to it. We feel yeah. bound to it. Um, and these things that we follow in politics, they follow Trump religiously. People who buy Apple, they do it religiously, right? Like we are committed to it. Um, So when I was thinking about language, and I love the idea of tribes, but tribes sort of sit uh, at a micro level. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, there are many tribes who actually are part of something bigger. So you call that like a mega tribe? You call it a a macro tribe? Um, And I just leverage the language from the religious literature to think about, well, what's a, a good moniker for this? And I thought about, well, well, what do you believe? It's how you, how you see the world. These are the, 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 the doctrine by which uh, an organization, a person, a brand, a politician, a clergy, et cetera, sees the world. Um, then who would they talk to? We talk to people who believe the same thing. Well, if we look at this through a religious lens, well, that's your congregates, Right, your congregation. And I thought about this through the lens of Christianity in particular. If you look at the 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 New Testament, right, there were different churches that had congregations yeah. that were part of a bigger yeah. belief. And I was like, oh, that's the thing. Yeah. They're the congregations thing. that are made up of many tribes. Yeah. I was like, oh, so I, I mean, I'm a, a fan of Seth Godin. Lots of and, letters in the New Testament written to lots of those different churches. That's right. That's right. And and the thing <laughs> is, and those, those letters that were written to all those different churches were then shared with all the churches mm-hmm. because what I'm telling these guys apply to you as well. Yep. And even though it's specific to the church of Philadelphia, I'm talking specifically to the, <laughs> to the, to the, to the Galatians here. Yeah. Right. And I, and and though 
there are unique things happening in those tribes, in those churches at that moment. Philadelphia was being praised and these guys were getting flogged. (laughs) (laughs) The takeaways, though, the ideological takeaways were very much the same. The dogmatic take or the, the, the doctrines were very much still the same. And the same thing goes here, that a brand should be looking at the congregation. Who believes? Mm-hmm. Who are the believers? People will see the world the way you do. And within that massive group of believers are different tribes. And you talk to those tribes specifically based on the conventions and expectations within those groups of people. So the example of this would be Nike. Yeah. Nike believes that every human body is an athlete. That's the belief. That's how it sees the world, right? Every human body is an athlete, big, small, short, tall, wall athletes. And the only thing keeping us from being our best athletic self is us. Mm. So what does Nike tell the world? Just do it. Mm -hmm. Because the only thing keeping you from doing it is you. So just do it. But Nike talks to swimmers differently than they talk to runners or talk to basketball players or American footballers or footballers, soccer players or fencers, or or they're different kinds of tribes within this congregation of athletes. And though what I'm telling runners as Nike applies to swimmers, I'm talking specifically to runners. So if I could tell the congregation, even though I'm talking to one particular family, it's interesting um, in, in my church, the pastor often says, listen, when you come to church, Act like I'm talking directly to you. <laughs> like th- this sermon is for you. Like you're the only one in here. This is for you. Though it applies to everyone because yeah. it applies to everyone, but think that I'm talking to you. And that's how Nike talks to athletes. They talk to them through specificity. Because when a brand, a politician, uh, an artist, an organization or an entity understands the nuances that make us tick, we go, that's my guy. Yeah. They get it. They're one of us. They're aligned with my why. Exactly. Exactly. And and so, and we are all, you know, we're communal by nature, right? Social animals by nature, as Aristotle would say, right? So we're all just trying to crash into each other. Evolutionary anthropologists would argue the reason why we're able to evolve was our ability to connect, to cooperate, to socialize. Like we are social animals. We're looking for everything that brings us together and things that are like ourselves, right? We're um, homophilic in that way. So how would an evolutionary uh, anthropologist talk about how we choose those people? Oh, well, we choose based on what feels safe, hmm. right? The, the, the brain is a prediction machine. I love right? this. The brain's just trying to keep us alive. That's the primary job of the brain is to keep you living. Well, how does the brain do that? It makes predictions based on what you've experienced and what feels familiar. In real time, like the research on this right now, like coming out in like recent years is phenomenal. Unbelievable. It's so amazing. It's this way you get the cognitive biases, yeah. the heuristics, right? We have these shortcuts because look, the brain only has so much processing power It's a day. piece of meat inside a dark <laughs> skull. It doesn't have any access to the outside world. That's right. And yet it's making predictions about what's going to happen next. That's right. And then- improving that feedback loop by what actually happens next. That's right. Based and, on the sensory data that's coming in. And by the way, it's old hardware. <laughs> yeah. Like the brain has like, it hasn't really changed that much. Maybe yeah. some places here and there, different kind of wiring, but by and large, we're still operating, you know, with the same hardware from our sub-Saharan African days. The, the software may have updated, but the hardware is still very much the same. So we're still bound by those same things, right? Like, yeah. you know, if yeah. you hear a rustle in the bushes while we're out trying to get dinner, 
you start running. <laughs> I don't know what that was, but I see you run. I'm going to run too because that means survival, right? If I see a stranger, I go, I don't know if I'm going to trust them, yeah. right? Because that could mean my death. Like the brain does this. Yeah. So we tend to, in some cases, overvalue people like ourselves, Yeah. right? That's why, you know, if you go out of the country, especially if you're American mm. and you hear American accent, you go, America, where are you from? I'm from Chicago, from <laughs> oh, Detroit. Oh my oh, God. Safe. I got families. Oh my God, best friends. Like yeah. this is what this is what we do. We're wired to do these very things. Yeah. So we find the familiar, yeah. right? And the familiar comes from shared beliefs. Like if we believe the same thing, then you're not gonna hurt me. Yeah. Because yeah. we abide by the same operating yeah. system. If you're one of us, yeah. I'm safe. Yeah. Right. And look, the brain only has so much processing power per day. Yeah. Right. So it has to be very efficient. So we do these shortcuts to quickly arrive at who are our people. And we abide by the expectations of our people so that we stand, so we maintain good standing citizenship within our people. This is, this is exactly one of the reasons I recommend um, Cialdini's book to everybody who wants to understand uh, cognitive biases and why we have them. Yeah, that's because right. this is exactly why we have them. That's in right. These beautiful catalog. But can you talk about how you've seen um, hyperpolarization shape the people that we are drawn to. The New York Times recently had this like uh, wonderful um, visualization of how <laughs> red tribe and blue tribe have over uh, a period of time separated geographically. Mm -hmm. And they had this like cluster visualization. Yeah. And, and it started out as like this purple blob, right? And then over time, these scatter plots begin separating themselves. And now they're, they're, you know, I think it's one in three Americans geographically have no contact with anybody of the opposite quote unquote tribe, color tribe. What, what does that tell you? I mean, safety. <laughs> I, mean, it's, it, I mean, it really boils down to safety. I mean, think about like the great migration, yeah. right? Where, uh, where black people were leaving the South to find opportunities in the North. Not only was there economic opportunities, but there was more safety. Yeah. Like people were trying to be safe, you know? <laughs> like, you know, people say, you know, Dwayne Wade recently, you know, said like, hey, I don't know if my family's going to stay in Florida mm. because he has a trans child. And he said, my, my child's safety is at risk being here. Why would I stay in the crosshairs? I mean, I would, I would arguably say we're seeing that in the world of zeros and ones. Yes. Black people escaping yeah. Twitter yeah. because it's not safe, yeah. right? As soon as Elon Musk takes over the platform, you see a rocket increase of hate speech, of anti-Semitism, of the N-word, like— Ain't nobody yeah. got time for that. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. I, I'm not safe here. I don't want to spend my time here. Exactly. Yeah. So you find a, a refuge yeah. in something like Spill, right? And you find, oh, my people are already at, at threads. Great. The, 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 the network effects yeah. of, of threads are already in place. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm out of this place. And, and those things, look, they may manifest differently in different contexts, but they're driven by the same mechanisms. Yeah. We want to be with people like us because that means safety, that means security, and we want to live. Yeah. There was a part in your book that really jumped out at me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, I'm going to quote, um, particularly around the changes within the Republican Party. Because one of the things I want to talk about is how culture changes yeah. and, and the role of subcultures. Yeah. Um, here's what you wrote. The more aligned with the cultural characteristics of the tribe we are, the more normal we are. As members of the tribe, our aim is to stay in good standing with the tribe, so we fall in line and follow the rules. We act in lockstep with the culture of the tribe. Of course, there are always social actors who exist in the tribe, but do their own thing. 
They are a part of the population, but deviate from the cultural characteristics of the collective. This is where subculture happens, a culture within a culture. People on the fringes of society who subscribe to some cultural characteristics of the group, but not all, like most normal folks, tend to create their own subculture that best defines who they are and how they see the world. They live in that subculture until the subculture becomes the new norm. That's right. So here's the question I want to hear from you. Uh, Like Since 2015, 2016, we've seen this real fragmentation of the Republican Party, Mm -hmm. especially, um, and and I think of that as my place in it or uh, as part of the exodus from it in the never Trump movement that has come to be called now, right? That's right. Um, And we've heard from a lot of people that they feel alienated because they don't think their ideology has moved, but the party has moved. Mm. And so I wonder how you think about, let's just take the Republican Party for, for a minute and whether... MAGA was the subculture that took over, or the never-Trump Republicans are the new subculture. How do you think about culture in the context of, we'll just take that political drive yeah. for a moment. If you want to talk about the Democratic side, that's yeah. great too. So, but, so I, think, yeah. I think so. I think what's happening is you're seeing uh, the party experience cognitive dissonance mm. because their identity marker, I am a Republican, mm-hmm. um, and their ideologies are no longer in sync. What it means to be a Republican feels completely different than the ideological uh, uh, markers that they that they once held. And when I think about like the fragmentation that's ha- that happened in the Republican Party, I first think about the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. They were fringed crazies mm-hmm. at first, mm-hmm. like those people crazy. You saw the costumes, yeah. <laughs> you see? yeah. Those people crazy, <laughs> and you and and Republicans would say that's not who we are. No, 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 right. no, 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 no. Yeah. We just believe in fiscal conservatism. That's the Tea Party, not the Republican Party. Exactly. Yeah. Even though they still self-identify as Republicans, right? So if you think about so uh, think about the normal curve, right? Yeah. I'm going to get just nerdy just for a Distribution moment. Distribution curve. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it used to be called the Gaussian curve. Mm-hmm. Carl Gauss, uh, a German um, statistician, ma- uh, mathematician, he created what we know as the, the most accurate depiction of how things diffuse in a population, right? It became the 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 Everett Rogers curve, yeah. diffusion curve. Yeah. Uh, we know it as the bell curve. The bell curve. And the... colloquially, we call it the normal curve. Yeah. And why is it called the normal curve? Because everything that is not man-made essentially abides by that distribution. It's worshipped in Silicon Valley because it's the predictor of how technology is going to be adopted That's by society. That's right. It's normal. Yeah. Right? And the way the normal curve looked is draw the bell in your mind. You, everyone's listening to this know exactly what I mean. Everything's in the middle, right? The majority of people in the middle. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, statistically 80% of people yeah. are, are in the middle. And there's social forces pushing you, telling you to be normal. Mm-hmm. So the higher that curve is, the more normal it is, the more uniform it is, right? And those forces pushing on us, that's culture. Mm-hmm. Those are the conventions and expectations of people like us. Mm-hmm. You wear a certain kind of clothes, you talk a certain kind of way, you go to certain kind of schools, marry a certain kind of person, take a certain kind of job, vacation in certain kind of places. This is just what people like us do. It's a measurement of normality, culture. And if you are in the middle, you're normal. <laughs> normal. You do what you do. You vacation where you vacation. You went to this. Of course, you went to this kind of school. Of course, you married that kind of person. Of course, you know yep. you do these things. But if you are outside of the normal, you're fringe, mm-hmm. right? And what happens is that yeah, we believe the same thing, but like they go about it in a very, very different way. They have a, a you know a sort of a slant yeah. on 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 this thing. So we consider those fringe. And I think in in my lifetime, 
seeing that for the first time was the Tea Party. And you would hear Republicans go, no, 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 that's not me. Those guys, not me. And I would argue that when MAGA came around, Mm. it shifted the Overton window. The Overton window, we should uh, explain to people. Yeah, so the Overton window is- uh, Named after a guy named Overton. That's right. (laughs) There you go. It's a a theory in the political science that if you want to shift people's opinion about a thing, you don't- you don't argue sort of the the realm of yeah. of acceptedness. <clears throat> right. You go far to the left of it or far to the right yeah. of it. And it becomes so far out that people will meet you halfway. Yeah. Right. So like if you want, if you want to uh, um, shift the Overton window on corruption, for example, you'd elect Donald Trump to office and then all of a sudden corruption becomes normalized to an extent. That's right. Yeah. That's right. If you if you want to, if you want gay relationships to be accepted in, in society, then push for gay marriage. Yeah. And you go, not marriage. They could be together. They could be dating, but not marriage, right? <laughs> not like, marriage. Right. Yeah. So you push yeah. them to something that seems far out. Yeah. Right. Something, at least in, in the concept of, yeah. of the people, the, the, the meaning frames, the people you push them to something far out, and they'll sort of meet you in the middle. And at the time, the, the, the Tea Party was so far out. Yeah that they seemed crazy. But then when MAGA came around, it was even further out than that. The Tea Party felt people like, oh, I guess they're not that crazy. I mean, think about this. Yeah. When, when Trump was in office, people, Democrats, yeah. me, was like, you know, Bush wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. Yeah. You know, it's like, yo, it wasn't that bad. Like, yep. yeah, but at the time, Bush he was- He made the, up some words here and there, but, you know, his heart was in the right place, that's maybe. Right. It's like, he wasn't diabolical. You know, he was like, you know, the guy yeah. had, you know, flawed yeah. in every way possible, but he wasn't this. Like, yeah. this is like, this is like Dr. Evil we're dealing with right here. That's the Overton window at play. Like, it becomes so radical yeah. that what was once radical now becomes- normal or within the realm of acceptability. Yeah. It becomes legitimated. And this is how subcultures get worked into the populace, mm. right? Like everything that is now normal yeah. was once crazy, Yeah, was once weird. Like if you were into comic books 20 years ago, you were a loser. Yeah. yeah. Now the movies we watch across the globe all come from comic books. It's so important. 20 years ago, if you were into anime, you were weird. Now, now they're at the biggest convention centers in the country. That's what I'm talking about, man. <laughs> 20 years ago, if you were into video games, yeah. you were a loser, failure to launch, living in your mama's basement. And now? Multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. And it is cool. Yeah. Everything works this way. They start in the subcultural and they propagate into the populace to yeah. become normal, whether you're on the Republican side, yeah. the Democratic side, and, and all, all sides, yeah. right? So what does that mean? If you pull that back, it says a lot about how we should think about going to market. Mm. The idea isn't to, let's talk to the middle, mm. where everyone is, the mainstream, like the mainstream American, the mainstream voter, that person does not exist. Yeah. That person is practicing a risk aversion strategy. Yeah. They're the they're they're not going to vote in the primaries. Yeah. They're not going to be the first person to watch your movie. Not the person that downloads your album. Not the first person to try your restaurant. They're not going to be the first yeah. person because they are practicing risk aversion. Yeah. Instead, talk to the people who see the world the way you do. And those people will not only consume, yeah. not only vote, not only donate, not only download, not yeah. only subscribe, but they'll go preach the gospel for you. I think about it like a wave, like you're surfing. Get way out in front of that wave and start paddling, man. That's right. Just 
don't look behind you. Right. When you feel the wave catch, you stand up. That's right. And we do that by preaching the gospel, yeah. our conviction, our why, to people who see the world similarly. And those people go, oh. Oh. Come I, and listen I to this guy. I hear that. They go, Ron, come yeah. listen to this guy. He was saying yeah. exactly what yeah. we were just saying. Yeah. This is our guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then the thing is that you don't consume it only. You yeah. use it as a badge of identity. Yeah. You become a Bernie bro. Yeah. You become a MAGA yeah. guy. Like yeah. it becomes a part of your identity. And then you go do the recruiting mm -hmm. on behalf of the brand, brand, the candidate, the organization, the institution. <sighs> and that is, I mean, to me, like that is the power of culture. Yeah. There is no external force more influential to human behavior than culture. And our ability to activate the system of systems yeah. allows us to leverage the power of culture to propagate within a population, get more people to move. So I'm mindful of the time. First of all, the book is not just academic, it's practical and it's very conversationally written. It's, no, it's I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant, but it's also very accessible. Um, and I would recommend it to people who um, are not necessarily marketers or practitioners or, you know, trying to launch a big campaign. It's useful in a day-to-day. -day. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about how um, an ordinary person might find utility in this book in whatever they're doing? Sure. So I... I I say explicitly that this is not a marketing book. It's a people book. Yeah. It's a people book because the book focuses on how to get people to move. So anyone with a vested interest in getting people to adopt behavior, this book is for you. If you are a manager, a leader, entrepreneur, a marketer, a politician, an activist, clergy, even if you're parents. I mean, like I'm trying to get my kids to eat peas. They just won't do it, right? Like we are, are we, and, and that's the thing is that when you look at through that lens, you go, oh man, oh. we're all trying to influence somebody. <laughs> yep. you know, I'm trying to get my boss to give me a promotion. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to do whatever the thing may be. We're trying to get people to move. And the better we understand people, the better equipped we are to do that very thing. And the book unpacks why we are the way we are, humanity. And then how might we leverage these mechanisms that govern our day-to-day -day lives in such a way to get people to adopt behavior? And then it ends, sort of capsizes uh, the reading with now that you have this information, this power, you now have responsibility. Because as Uncle Ben has told us, with great power comes great responsibility. All right. Last question. Yes, sir. I opened with the quote um, that you closed your 2017 TED Talk with, mm -hmm. which is about building a better nation. Yeah. How do you think we can move in that direction now, thinking about understanding people who are different from us? I think it goes back to the pin you put in the conversation earlier, meaning that we all abide by different meaning frames. We see the world differently because the world is socially constructed. And therefore, since the world is socially constructed, the world is not objective, subjective. Think of it this way, that if life is a basketball game, right? The phenomenal social world in which we live is a basketball game. If you have nosebleed seats, you're seeing a different game than someone on the court side. Even though we're watching the same thing empirically happen, we experience it differently because of where we sit in this figurative uh, uh, game. So if we want a better view of the world, then we have to sit in many, 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 many seats. I we have to see the world through many, 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 many lenses. And in doing that, 
you realize, oh man, like the way I see the world is just one way to see it. And that's totally cool. And someone else may see it differently. And that's totally cool too. And so long as your worldview does not mean my oppression, I got no problem with it. Right? I may not agree. I may not agree. And that's fine. But so long as it doesn't mean my oppression, man, we should be all good. And if any population of people on this planet should understand that, it should be the United States because that's what we were founded on. That's what we're supposed to, that's the, that's our why, isn't it? That's what the credo is that we're all, that we're all here, right? For the pursuit of happiness, that we all can get access to it. And so long as your pursuit doesn't mean my oppression, hey man, it's all good. And I think that we find ourselves in this ideological place that we stand on a hill of moral superiority. And we think that my ideological frames are supposed to be the ones that you see the world through. And if you don't, you're crazy and you're wrong. And that I think is empirically wrong. And so long as we're not impeding on people's liberties, their, their, their freedoms, their rights, their civility, their humanity, then what is the problem? Right? Yeah. So I think that leads to a better nation that we realize that the world is subjective, not objective, that we start hopefully, prayerfully, inshallah, <laughs> we find ourselves being a little bit more curious. If we go, oh man, there's many ways that this world can be observed and be translated. I wonder how Ron sees the world. <laughs> I wonder how these people see the world. Oh, And I think that people who are traveled, who travel a lot, they realize that. I mean, for me, I don't know if I speak yeah. for anyone else, whenever I travel, especially internationally, it is always the most humbling experiences, yeah. experience for me because I realize just how many seats there are in the basketball game that is life. Yeah. The many different seats there are to observe the world, to, to observe this phenomenal world in which we live. And I go, oh man, I'm just one, I'm just one grain of sand in this beach. Right? If I just mix metaphors there, I'm just yeah. one, I'm just I'm sitting in one chair. And to see the world in different places, I may go, I don't like that. And I don't like that, that view, but this view feels actually kind of nice. I think that's a really powerful thing. Dr. Marcus Collins. Amen. I love it. Thank you for being here. This is a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We could keep on talking. We could, we could, we could yeah. come to, keep on talking. Um, I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. And, uh, and until next time. Thank you much. Thank you. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.